I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Checky one, two. Good morning, Mr. Yeah. Hedgy. Good morning. I wanted to be recording right away, so, you know. All right. So, ready? Yeah? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, yeah. It turns day into night. Air into fire. So, I grew up in the 90s. Me too. This is the golden age of disaster movies. Oh, hell yeah. Dante's Peak. Volcano. A volcano is turning nature into a nightmare. I can't believe you mentioned Dante's Peak. It's one of my favorites. It's great. When the, I mean, it's not great, but when the, uh, the grandma boils in the lake... I remember being horrified by uh, that when I was a little kid. One of the things I love about these movies is they tell you exactly what you're going to get in the title. Like, Volcano, Firestorm, Twister. It's literally just the name of the disaster you're going to witness. It's not going to drop anywhere near us. It's going to drop right on us. But as I've gotten older, I have started to like think back and wonder, like, what is the appeal? Why is it that we want to watch these horrible events unfold? I suppose people um, want to think about the worst that could ever happen. Um, they feel, of course, there is an element of science in all the disaster movies. There's also an advisor who uh, tries to explain what's happening. So this is a guy. Uh, obviously, this is a <laughs> <laughs> this is a person. This is a human. This is a paleontologist named Mike Benton. And yes, I think you're right. There is a sense of awe, the scale of it. We know we're powerless, uh, and and even the most amazing technologies ne- wouldn't necessarily um, protect us in in some of these terrible circumstances. So the reason I called up this guy Nate is because he specializes in the biggest disasters there are which are mass extinction events. 
We are talking true stories from Earth's past of asteroids, catastrophic climate change, supervolcanoes. Um, and it could happen tomorrow. You know, we're not, this is not something otherworldly. This is something that could be immediate. So, so here's the deal, Nate. This right here is our 250th episode. Oh, what a great way to enter into our 250th episode, Taylor. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking is that for this historic moment, I would like to offer up a little perspective, right? So rather than engage in some kind of like cliched clip show where we play favorite, you know, moments from the past. Um, yeah. I want to tell you the greatest and most terrible disaster story in all of Earth's history. Ooh. Technically, this is called the Permian-Triassic Extinction Event, but the more poetic scientists out there refer to it by another name. They call it the Great Dying. The Great Dying. Yeah. That sounds depressing. Sounds like it could be a movie, right? No one would title their Hollywood blockbuster disaster movie the great dying <laughs> well, that's like fall oscar fair that's like the road you know <laughs> like that's not deep impact so let me set the scene okay we are 250 million years in the past about oh apt Yeah, you get it? 250, 250. Yeah, I get it now. This is way before the dinosaurs. During an age of super bizarre creatures you have likely never heard of or seen. Biggest creatures that you would have seen in front of you were the pariasaurs. The pariasaurs. Imagine a hippopotamus mates with an iguana. Big blobby creatures with short legs. How big are we talking? Like the size of a hippo? Yes. Whoa. And they were preyed upon by um, saber-toothed reptiles. These beasts were called Gorgonopsians. That's a great name. They had teeth that were maybe five, six inches long. Wow, this sounds like uh, an eight-year-old's drawing. That's what I'm saying. it, It is a different world. Yeah, we haven't seen this movie. Now, it's not just the animals that are unusual. The shape of this world is super different from what it is today, too. The Atlantic Ocean is shut. Europe, North America, Africa, South America, they are joined together, fused. All the continents were fused as a single supercontinent called Pangaea, which extended more or less from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. So land-living creatures and plants could could kind of move everywhere. And it wasn't just a single continent. Um, The range of temperatures from the equator to the pole were much reduced compared to today. There was no polar ice cap. And we know that from measurements in the rocks where we can assess the temperatures and from the fossils. We can show that the same plants and animals are pretty much living everywhere. So it's just steamy, hot, humid Pangaea. Yes. And there was no sign of any problem on the horizon. Until in a world. (laughs) In the movies, you know, this is also where, like, I don't know if it would be a cartoon or what, but, you know, like one of the Gorgonopsians would like run up and shuffling a bunch of papers and be like, uh, 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 listen, there's <laughs> yeah. something happening and I think you should know about it. And he'd be selling that to like some sort of a, a, a hippopotamus iguana general who would be like dismissive of him. And yeah, that's like, oh, not it. Everything's fine. You got Morgan Freeman playing a uh, playing one of the hippopotamus <laughs> iguanas. 
Um, so if I could break the flow for a second, the, the truth about these mass extinctions mm-hmm. is that we know they happened because of fossil evidence, but actually explaining how they happened is a lot trickier. Um, I mean, it, it makes sense to me how hard it would be to decide like how an entire species, how an entire like ecosystem of creatures was wiped off the earth. But one thing we can say for sure, Nate, is that 250 million years ago, there was a volcanic eruption in what is now Russia. And today we call this vast area of volcanic rock the Siberian Traps. Current estimates for the the, the, the the scale of the eruptions are way beyond anything that um, we know today. People talk about billions of cubic kilometers of lava. What would that even... I have no concept of what that would be like. Are we talking about uh, the size it's, of Rhode Island? Yeah, big, bigger than Rhode Island. It, it would kind of cover... Um, a third of Canada. It would probably cover all the eastern provinces of Canada right up to the Great Lakes. And, and it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a chance estimate because, of course, the, the lava is there, it's preserved and, and it's been mapped. This guy should definitely be in a disaster movie, by the way. His voice <laughs> is perfect. FYI, this would not have been one of those Mount St. Helens or Vesuvius types of eruptions, where the whole cone of a mountain blows off. This would have been what's called a fissure eruption. Great cracks open up, and and this can really be seen in Iceland today. Um, And they're not always active, you know, the crack is there, but when it becomes active, um, the amount of lava being spewed out is huge. So we are talking about hell opening up on Earth, lava pouring out like the world's biggest rivers all overflowing their banks. We are talking about everything in the immediate vicinity burning, choking to death. Jeez, Taylor, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying to <laughs> transmit the drama here. No, you're, you're talking it up. I'm, I'm riveted. Continue. <laughs> um, but as is often the case with volcanoes, right, it's the ash pouring out of these cracks that spreads across the globe. And so the zone of effect was worldwide. And we know that for sure because um, ash deposits and other indicators of the uh, gaseous outpourings have been picked up pretty much worldwide. And it's not just ash. It's also toxic gases like sulfur dioxide. They, they come quickly. They impact on the atmosphere very quickly and they cause freezing, cooling. So first there was likely a regional, maybe global cold snap. And then came the rain. If you think of the sulfur dioxide, which has the cooling effect, mix sulfur dioxide with water and you've got sulfuric acid. That's battery acid. Battery acid rain? Yeah. So, so you know, we have a sense of acid rain and it's not good. Yeah. This acid rain would be literally more like acid. Oh, my God. Those poor iguana hippos. This, yeah, this is the kind of rain that could erode limestone over time. But imagine what it's going to do, certainly to the animals, but even more so to the ferns and to the trees. Right. This is nightmarish. Yeah. Uh, another emission that comes from the traps, a group of elements called halogens. Uh, this includes iodine and bromine. These are uh, the sort of things we use in halogen lamps. Guess what they do? Uh, they just uh, gently light the area in a way that... You know, it's, it's just it's, it's nice. It illuminates it illuminates the apocalypse nicely in a warm glow. No, no. What they did was they literally destroyed the ozone. <laughs> so you remember the hole in the ozone layer during this true disaster story of the Great Dying? The entire ozone layer was pretty much destroyed. 
you always tell us with Outside In episodes that we're supposed to be like bringing joy and like just like excitement and everything else like that to our to our listeners. <laughs> I feel like for our 250th episode, this is hands down takes the cake. The most darkest, depressing story i've heard in a while well it's like it's like continue if if you're gonna talk about doomsday scenario let's talk about the doomsday scenario you know what i mean like let's not (laughs) pull any punches this is as bad as it gets this is the one okay continue continue with this hell but but then after this cooling all this stuff then comes you guessed it the global warming Mm. so cooling first then the planet gets hot because the other emissions from the siberian traps would have been just massive amounts of co2 and water vapor Scientists think that the atmospheric carbon um, went from a little over 400 parts per million, which is actually where it is about for us now, um, to six times that much. Wow. This past July, you know, we broke all sorts of records for heat, right? Um, Right. Do you know what the global average temperature was this July? I don't. Not off the top of my head. So it's about 63 degrees Fahrenheit. That doesn't sound that hot, actually. Right, because it's a global average. So you're taking, you know, the temperature at the North Pole, the equator, Montana, New Hampshire, all of that is getting averaged together. Okay. During the Great Dying, the global average temperatures were over 95 degrees. Whoa. So effectively, the net result of all of this crisis on land was that forests were wiped out. So you know how we know this, Nate? This is kind of cool. Okay. Um, I'll give you a hint. What do dead plants turn into after millions of years? Coal. Coal. Fossil. Fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, right. People noted years ago a so-called coal gap. And there's a coal gap of 10 or 15 million years in the early Triassic. No coal at all. Forests had gone. So this whole coal gap is how we know that there were no forests during this great dying. Yeah, ironically, it's our love for fossil fuels that has helped us discover... <laughs> this uh, this particular time of great climate change. Yeah, and it seems that at one point, on land at least, the the killing of the forests had a second effect that we might not first think of. If you kill the trees, you remove the trees. As they are removed, the soil goes with them because, of course, it's the roots of the trees that stabilize the soil over the landscape. So you've you've seen an eroded trail. Yeah. This is just an eroded earth. It went from the, the, the sort of soil-covered, lush landscape we know with slow-moving, meandering rivers to a kind of crisis landscape of rocks only. Mm, a crisis landscape, indeed. And, and it really took thousands, maybe millions of years for the, the, the subtlety, yeah, the kind of softness and subtlety of the landscape to rebuild itself. I think, you know, the thing about disaster movies, <laughs> part of part of what makes them enjoyable is that, um, you know, like you are safe and you can imagine that it could happen to you. But like, really, it's only going to happen to someone else is the very privileged way that you think sitting in a movie theater. Yep, absolutely. And the messed up thing about this is that like. When you're looking at disasters at this apocalyptic scale, it's like, uh, this happens to everybody. Yeah, you never see that even, like, I think there's, like, a couple movies where, like, the asteroid literally destroys the world. Um, that recent one with Leonardo DiCaprio comes to mind. And the reason we know that there is a comet is because we saw it. We saw it with our own eyes using a telescope. I mean, for God's sakes, we took a f-ing picture of it. 
What other proof do we need? But like most of the time, it's like asteroid hits and it's bad, but like the cool family survives. Well, actually, I think that this goes to show you that like disaster movies have changed and because of climate change, they're like bigger and stupider than they've ever been before because yeah. like we still have to have plausible deniability. So Geostorm and whatever, Moonfall, uh-huh. like the moon is cracked. Like those things are just so big and dumb that it doesn't give me uh, climate anxiety. Literally the moon gets sucked into the earth. Great idea. I love that stuff. <laughs> oh, the moon is rising. Gravity's gonna go crazy. But I think it does tell you that, like, the old style of disaster movie, it's more uncomfortable now. And I think that's because, A, with climate change, you know, disasters are feeling more commonplace. Mm-hmm. B, you yeah. can watch them all the time because of YouTube and iPhone cameras. Like, you can really go down the rabbit hole if you want to. And see, unlike Hollywood movies, these are real people, you know, running away from destruction, right? These aren't B-list celebrities. And we've gone through a global pandemic recently. We've gone through these, with climate change, these tremors of like, oh my God, like disasters actually right outside our door. Yeah. Well, back to my story, because we haven't even talked about what happened to the oceans yet. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. All right. Continue. I feel like if there was someone giving you script notes, they would be like, I don't know if the movie needs a whole 10-minute scene on what the hell happens to the ocean. Well, we don't we don't have like a Pierce Brosnan to play like a sexy Gorgonopsian who's going to yeah, you know, who's like <laughs> driving his F150 away from the exploding Siberian traps. Yeah, we definitely needed to have a hero Gorgonopsian, a Pierce Brosnan. These are just precautionary measures. We don't want to start a panic. Did anybody feel that? Gentlemen, please remain calm. Please just stay. Okay, so compromise. Why don't we just take a uh, timeout real quick? We'll take a break. Um, and folks, please do come back because there is sort of a happy ending to this story and some other stuff we want to tell you about. So stick around. Hi, Outside In. This is Russell calling from Denver. I want to first of all congratulate you guys on 250 episodes. I started listening in the summer of 2017, and I'm happy to say that I've basically listened to every episode you guys have released, and it's always been a constant source of joy. If I had to pick an episode in particular that was one of my favorites, I feel like I'd say the most dangerous game, going back around the history of pinball and just kind of how like myth-making kind of happens. I really appreciate the kind of like campfire aspect that the episode had, and that's always where I think my favorite episodes are are where uh, basically your entire group gets together and just has fun together and tells stories. That really was what, the story itself was great, but just kind of feeling like you guys were all having a good time together learning this story really made me feel like I was a part of the story as well. So thank you guys for everything you do, and I look forward to the next 250. Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail. And each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, 
ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Hey, this is Nate Hedgie. You're listening to Outside In. It is our 250th episode. Woo-hoo. Taylor wants me to go, huzzah. I don't, I've never said huzzah. I've, I, I, nobody says huzzah. Read the script, Nate. Read the script. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, continue with your depressing story, Taylor. Okay, thank you. Uh, and I, I, for this little section, I want, I want you to humor me. Um, could you really quickly Google the Guadalupe Mountains of Texas? I don't need to Google them. I know them. Oh, yeah? I can describe them. Uh, they kind of rise out of the desert, almost like castle-like, surrounded by yucca. Yeah. Now, how do you think those formed? I'm going to guess this is the smushing of, t- well, no, because it's not a huge ridge. Oh, that's a volcano, an old volcano. A totally respectable guess given the subject matter, but this was a red herring because what you are looking at are the eroded remnants of an ancient coral reef. Really? At this stage during the late Permian, Texas was under the ocean. That's cool. These Guadalupe mountain reefs were big, these huge structures, which like today would have been visible from outer space. You know, this makes sense because right near the Guadalupe mountains is the Permian Basin. Yes. And the area around those mountains would be teeming with all of this life. Mollusks and other kinds of shellfish, snails and other things creeping amongst them looking for food, and above them a diversity of unfamiliar looking fishes. So what happened to those coral reefs 250 million years ago? Well, um, all that acid rain first poured into the waves, and we we talk a lot about ocean acidification now. Mm -hmm. The creatures that suffer first are all these shelled animals swimming around and there's a very good reason for that they all struggle because their shells are made of calcium carbonate and the acid simply eats it away so but on top of that all of the soil this is this is sort of building disaster upon disaster all of that soil and plant debris is kind of being washed into the ocean sporadically stripping the surface of the land but it also clogs the, the feeding apparatus of a lot of the corals and other um, seabed organisms because a lot of the richness of a coral reef is based around the corals and other colonial creatures that are sitting there passively. They don't move around. They, they capture their food from the clear ocean water that flows by. So you could almost think of this as like, uh, you know, agricultural runoff in the very Mm -hmm. worst and most dramatic fashion. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, again, another thing that we're talking about a lot today, ocean warming. The oceans are built Mm -hmm. on these cycles of warm and cold water flowing up and down in the water column that refreshes and circulates food. But also, more importantly, it dissolves oxygen and then moves it about the ocean. And if you if you stop that normal cycling, the oceans become to an extent stagnant. You ever you ever seen a, f- a photo of a big fish kill? It's just like a yeah, it's just a silver just horizon of of dead fish. It's it's really sad. So we we can imagine that happening at this worldwide scale, and and much like the coal gap in the oceans, we see kind of coral gap. Hmm. There's a sudden stoppage in the development of ocean life and a layer of death across the geological record. All told, the loss of life across the world, on land and in water, 
was unimaginable. It looks as if the survivors represent only 5%, 1 in 20 of species survive, both in land, on land and in, in the oceans. Even those 5% of species that survive, they were probably heavily hit. So the number of individual organisms, maybe their geographic spread, perhaps were catastrophically cut back. And so if we were looking at biomass, it might have gone down to 1% or even less. For the first time for billions of years since the early stages, early in the origin of life, you're kind of turning the clock back. You're expunging hundreds of millions of years of history and life has to kind of start up again. It's not quite analogous because there were here and there rare survivors of complex life forms, of course. So it's not a total return to the origin of life, but the world must have felt strangely alien. Give me the time span of this real quick. Like, are we, because I'm, I'm imagining this and happening in like a couple of weeks, but what's the time span of this, this volcanic eruption and giant uh, climate changing event? You know, the, the, the short answer is we don't know exactly. Okay. There would have been aspects that were catastrophic and sudden, like a disaster movie. But ultimately, this is a disaster that took place over a much, much longer time period than you or I can probably grasp. I think it's now widely accepted that it wasn't just one pulse of massive eruption. There were two or three events separated by maybe 60 to 100,000 years. And you can actually see the species that disappear with number one, and then some new species appear, then there's another killing new species, another killing. So it seems there are several pulses, and it's kind of debated at the moment how many. So I want to know about these critters that survived, because you've painted a hellscape that you would only see at, like, the seventh ring of Dante's Inferno or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So who survived this great dying? So first what you'd have is the entire continent colonized by mushrooms. Wow. Just a mat, a mat, you know, when you see like uh, in uh, in the hills in England and they're just like these beautiful grassy hills. Yeah. Imagine like just mushrooms and ferns across everything. The rolling hills of mushrooms. A fungi world. Yeah. And then, you know, things did start to come back. And, and the survivors, it's everything. Like look outside. Every animal you've ever seen today, its ancestors survived the Permian extinction. Turtles and crocodiles, the dinosaurian ancestors of birds, ancestors of mammals, and indeed ancestors of many modern groups of insects, flies and butterflies. Um, And and people have even dubbed this this changeover as a, a kind of gourmet's paradise because all the seafood we love eating um, uh, uh, the, the shrimps and lobsters and crabs, they all more or less originate at that time. I think that's what's most amazing to me right now is just like I'm looking at my window at what was at one point Pangaea and we have an ozone layer. There's grass. There's all these other things, you know, like just the ability of the planet to rebound is quite extraordinary. It is. As I've said many times on this show, life will find a way. <laughs> I knew it. As soon, 
as soon as you paused, I knew that's what was going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> that's a result of clearing out the world. So we can say, oh, yeah, that's great. So there is a kind of positive aspect, but it took a long time. So we mustn't make a moral story from this and say extinction is good. We'd be gone. Uh, again, I don't, I don't want to... Um... And, and you mentioned this a couple of times. I think it's important not to come up with a silver lining for extinctions in some way. You know, stories like this, you talked about it. There's a sense of powerlessness in the face of uh, uh, planetary events at this scale. But we also know we do have agency in our lives to mitigate and have an impact on our climate. And you as a paleontologist, I just wonder how you how you I don't know. Um, square yeah, those two things. I think you've you've put it very well. I think that we do have agency, but we have to be humble. We 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 don't have total agency. I, I suspect. Um, yes, I think it is very much a mixed message, and and that's something we do learn from the deep past. Uh, we have to remember the time scale. Life recovers, but it's not a reason to be complacent. So I know that this whole enterprise could be seen as depressing. And and that's the risk, right? Like just a lot of doomish climate change coverage, it can make people feel apathetic. But I think that these stories, and this story in particular, is one that should give us a sense of wonder about the fact that we're here at all. Like the fact that all these mass extinctions have led the planet that we know today to this moment means we should take life as beautiful, as impermanent, worth protecting, worth appreciating. And and that's what disasters do, right? And it and it also like I think disaster kind of it quickly shows you what's important uh in your life. It like strips and in these movies it's the same thing. It's always like Tommy Lee Jones reconnects with his daughter via a volcano. Yeah. Or Tia Leone reconnects with her her father via asteroid, you know? <laughs> Asteroid therapy. Yeah, asteroid therapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess one last thing um, that I'll just say, and this is it's going to sound stupid, but I mean it, which is that I really appreciate you, Nate, and I appreciate the show because we've been doing it for a long time, and I can't believe we get to make really wacky stuff, and I, I think that we do a great job sometimes of finding the balance between depressing and fun, um, and that is like... <laughs> That's so much my relationship with the natural world. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Congratulations on 250. Congratulations to you. You've been around since the very beginning. 250 episodes is a lot it these is. days. We're not extinct yet. I'm not going to say that joke. Um, <laughs> too soon, Nate. Too soon. <laughs> yeah, way too soon. <laughs> Alex calling from Boston in response to your request for what episodes we share. I share the episode about the call of the void all the time. That episode let me know I'm not crazy and I know more people need to hear that. The other day at lunch, all seven of us had experienced it, so I sent everybody that episode. Love the pod. Thanks so much. All right, so this is the part where everybody would normally file awkwardly out of the theater. So let me just end this by saying 
thank you for listening to all these years and for helping us celebrate 250 episodes. And uh, also a thank you to Michael Benton, our like David Attenborough of doom for this episode. <laughs> if you want to learn more about the great dying and other great extinctions, he has a book out called Extinctions, How Life Survives, Adapts, and Evolves. Also, we are kicking off a fundraiser for the next few weeks. And if you are a fan of the work we do, we really hope that you support it with a donation. I mean, this is public radio after all. And that means the vast majority of our budget, it comes from you, comes from listener support. Absolutely. And in honor of this 250th episode, the first 250 people to donate this time around are going to get a lovely little outside in ginkgo leaf sticker. I just saw them. I just saw them on the slacks and they look really beautiful. They're like really cool. And this is in commemoration of a fan favorite episode where we talked about the ginkgo tree, which uh, Nate coincidentally was one of those uh, so-called living fossils that first evolved in the recovery period after the great dying. Go ginkgo. That's amazing. Yeah. Also, uh, if you become a monthly donor at $5 a month, we're going to send you an outside in hat. Uh, It looks really cool. It's blue. This episode was produced and reported and mixed by me, Taylor Crimby, so you can send uh, any emails to my way if you think this was a horrible <laughs> idea. Send them to me. It was edited by our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie, and by me, Nate Hedgie, so you can also send me emails if you, if you didn't like it. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Oh, no.